0: I invite you to take a Bible and turn uh, to the uh, last chapter of the book of Ruth. It's on page two hundred and twenty-four in these Bibles in the pews. I've been preaching a series on uh, from the book of Ruth, and today comes to the last sermon. It's the fifth sermon in this series. And as you're as you're turning there, I would like to tell you that today it's being announced at Strong Tower Fellowship uh, that they have a new pastor uh, who is to arrive. He and his family is is Brett Barbie and his wife Barges and their four children uh, ages from 10 down to 2. I had the privilege to serve on the search committee and we uh, looked all over the country and there he was head and shoulders above everyone else because he and his wife had planted a church and organized it and developed leadership for it in Anderson, South Carolina Um, and he is, uh, they will be moving here at the end of July and The installation will be the night of August the 12th, Uh, so we give praise to God for that and and rejoice with that congregation. In case y'all don't know what we're talking about, this is a church plant on the edge of one of the worst neighborhoods, not just in Macon, but in the country. Let me tell you this, it was driving through that neighborhood that confirmed the call that they wanted to come there. We were afraid that was going to run them off, but that was like, they said, this is what God is calling us to and uh, this is where our heart is Uh, now where are we we're back at Ruth Um, before I read from chapter four I want to tell you about this insert Uh, I thought if you've not been here for the past sermons on this I also uh, I wanted to give you a, a brief update on what we've covered and then some helpful I hope will be some helpful resources The plot of the book, if you're looking at that that, uh, insert, is that this man, Elimelech, moves his wife Naomi and their two sons from Bethlehem to Moab due to a famine. Now, if you open the insert, you'll see a map. So you can see there's Bethlehem to the west of the Dead Sea, and they have to go up and around and down to get to the country of Moab. Um, Those of you that can convert kilometers, kilometers, I'm sorry, to miles, you can do the math there in your head. But Elimelech dies in Moab, as do his and Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion. They leave behind two childless Moabite widows, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi hears that the famine has ceased in Bethlehem, so she decides to return home. Ruth refuses to leave her, so she goes to Bethlehem with Naomi. Ruth, the daughter-in-law, cares for Naomi, and while gleaning for grain, she meets Boaz, who owns the field. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth as the kinsman redeemer, I talked a lot about that uh, last week, but the right belonged to a closer relative of Elimelech's who chooses not to do so. Boaz receives the right to marry Ruth and to purchase the land which had belonged to Elimelech. They marry and have a son whom the women of the town name Obed, that's what we'll see today, which means servant. He is the grandfather of King David. Um, The themes in the book of Ruth uh, behind this very interesting love story between Boaz and Ruth, we find they are both ordinary people with extraordinary character. and We need such stories today that elevate true manhood and womanhood. Ruth was a foreigner who was brought by faith into the covenant community. God's plan of redemption is for all people, those of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. And the book shows forth the sovereignty of God in joy and in sorrow. His plan is always much bigger than what we can see and experience. The sovereignty of God and the providence of God are closely related. I put the answer, a formal answer, from the larger catechism, what are the works of God's providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. If you have questions about that, there's an extensive whole section in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, that describes the providence of God, and I put the link there where you could download for free. Some of the resources, and there's a whole bunch of resources you can use to study Ruth, but these were the ones I found most helpful. And I, if you're an English teacher, just just try to overlook the fact. I didn't use a formal citation method here. I just put, you can find it, Google it. The Message of Ruth by David Atkinson. Uh, then another book, The Gospel of Ruth, Loving God Enough to Break the Rules by Carolyn James. A commentary on Esther and Ruth by, by Ian Duguid. And uh, then, Judges and Ruth by Stephen Dre. I probably drew from that more than any other. And then on the back, some helpful resources about God's providence. Uh, many of you have read these books; they've been around for a while. The Sweet and Bitter Providence: Sex, Race, and the Sovereignty of God by John Piper. That is his excellent book. Not only a not only lessons he teaches from the Book of Ruth, but he had, he delves into these subjects that are raised through the Book of Ruth: sex, race, and the sovereignty of God. Uh, Classic book by Jerry Bridges who wrote, he wrote Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Jerry Bridges is going to be with the Lord now but he wrote that book uh, he had just written it when he came here to speak years ago and he wrote it when his first wife was dying of brain cancer. And it was a, ter- he was, uh, it was a lengthy, very, very difficult time. And he, he wrote that book then and then R.C. Sproul's book written years ago, The Invisible Hand to All Things really work for good, and the classic work written in the 1950s by A.W. Pink, The Sovereignty of God. That's been reprinted many times, so you can, you can find that a different way. Now, I, I included one extra thing that I wasn't sure whether to include, but there's an online devotional that comes out two or three times a week by John Piper at the Desiring God website, and it's called Ask Pastor John, and he answers questions, and they last about 10 or 11 minutes. Well, back in March, our son, Stephen, who's disabled, had a birthday. And John Piper, who we got to know from him preaching here years ago, wrote my wife a letter for his birthday. And I said, can I use some of that letter in these sermons on the book of Ruth? And being the supportive wife she was, she said, absolutely not. It's my letter, and it's personal, and I'm going to keep it that way. <laughs> Well, last Friday, he put it on this devotional. He changes the names, but it's, it's a devotional, it's a 10 minute thing, not just written to strengthen parents of disabled children, but if you are a caretaker in any sense of the word, with an elderly parent, with a spouse, with, with a friend, uh, or just struggling with trials in life, It's worth your 10 or 11 minutes to listen to it, I'd suggest listen to it rather than, than read it, okay? Enough said. Now we come to Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Hear God's word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, in these moments we have together now, may you feed our hungry souls. You tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, our denomination had our annual general assembly. That's when representatives, hopefully representatives from all of our churches in our denomination come together. And we met this year in Atlanta. It moves from city to city and it was in Atlanta, and if you had been there, you would have been uh, surprised like me to see so many Koreans. We have approximately 1,900 churches or church plants in our denomination, and 221 of those are Korean churches. We have a Korean church, this PCA, here on Anthony Road. You ever notice that if you drive by? If you're going to Academy Sports, it's over right in that area. We have almost 700 Korean pastors in the PCA, and the largest church in our denomination is a Korean congregation in Los Angeles with 13,000 members. Now, since Korea has been in the news, North Korea has so much over the past couple of weeks, I thought you might be interested to know, in case you don't, how the gospel came to Korea and how the Lord had did such an amazing work there during the last century, during the 1900s. The first Protestant church was planted in Korea, which was unified at that time, in 1884. But 100 years later, there were nearly 30,000 churches. In 100 years, one church, 30,000 churches. To give you an idea, like our denomination, that's 40-something years old, We have 1,700 churches that are organized after 40-something years. In 100 years, they went to 30,000. In 1970, 10% of those living in South Korea said they were Christians. Ten years later, in 1980, 20%. And now, at least 30%. That is incredible when missiologists look at how the gospel moves through an entire country. Twenty new churches are started in South Korea every day. Ten of the largest churches in the world are in Seoul, South Korea. The largest Presbyterian church are 50,000 members. The largest Assembly of God church was roughly half a million members. You say, well, how could they, they could care, care for half a million people? Well, there are over 20,000 home small groups. Our denomination has 350,000 members, but Presbyterians in South Korea number almost 5 million. of the army of South Korea professes to be Christian. The largest theological seminaries in the world are there, but it has not always been that way. 150 years ago, when Korea was a unified country, there were no Protestant churches. And then a young man, I want to tell you about, a young man named Robert Thomas, who was in his 20s, he was born in the country of Wales. And in 1863, he went to China as an agent with the London Missionary Society. And he met two Koreans while he was there. And he was surprised to learn that all educated Koreans could read the Chinese scriptures. So the mission work that had been done in China to translate the Bible, the Koreans could read it. The educated Koreans could. So Robert Thomas, this young man in his 20s, decided that he would go to Korea. And he would take the gospel to the people there and he would take it in Chinese. Now this was easier said than done because at that time in history all foreigners were forbidden from entering Korea upon pain of death. But he never wavered in his intent. So in September of 1865 when this building was seven years old, uh, he had boarded a ship and their ship reached the outer islands of Western Korea. And then several months later, he boarded another ship that planned to do an exploratory trip up into Korea. And he had, it was an American ship, and all he had with him, beside his personal necessities, was a cargo of Bibles and gospel booklets. The ship crossed the Yellow Sea, that's the sea to the west of the peninsula. And it entered the mouth of the Taitong River, and it began to make its way up this wide river toward Toward the Great Wall City, 50 miles up the river of Pyongyang. Forgive me, I know I killed that right there, Sinjay. Stops were made at several places, uh, and each place where they would stop, Robert Thomas would, would give copies of the scriptures and those gospel booklets to people that were interested on the riverbanks. If no one was on the riverbanks, he would just leave them. He would leave a stack of Bibles because he had a heart for people. He had a heart for Korea, a heart like Christ had for the unreached. They came, the boat made its way further and further up and as it neared the Great Wall City, uh, their destination, the Korean people became frightened and rumors began to be spread that these are foreigners who have come to raid our ancient tombs and to, to kidnap our children. And so out of fear, thousands of Koreans lined the banks of the river on both sides and they began to fire their flintlock rifles at the ship. Little damage was done by these guns and yet the captain wisely decided we have got to leave. So he turned the boat around to go back down the river and in their descent they ran aground at the first set of rapids and were stuck in the middle of the river. So the shooting persisted and the Koreans finally set fire to the American ship forcing the crew to abandon the ship and attempt to swim to shore and as they did they were killed with knives and clubs and guns. The Koreans later said that all of the men came out of the water with swords and pistols and and tried to defend themselves all except one man who acted strange. The man staggered out of the water with his arms full of books which he gave into the hands of the Koreans as they clubbed him down. Multitudes in Korea today know the Savior and people in other countries because South Korea is one of the primary missionary sending countries in the world they know him because of the sacrifice of people like Robert Thomas that was 1866 by 1901 there were Presbyterian and and Methodist missionaries full time in the country Robert Moffat was one of the Samuel Moffat began uh, arriving in Korea. Seminaries were started, churches were planted, and the best book, and it'll it will mean more to you than I can communicate. It's not a long book, but if you want to read it, it's called "The Korean Pentecost and the Sufferings Which Followed," because of the awakening that took place in the early 1900s, followed by the Japanese occupation and all the suffering that took place by the people who had come to know Christ earlier, the Korean Pentecost. Now, why do I say all this? What does this have to do with Ruth? Robert Thomas was an ordinary, common person just like you and me. Uh, he, he was not super gifted, was not super talented. He just had a passion to take the gospel to these people. And so here in Ruth, as we close out Ruth with the end of chapter 4, we're reminded these are just ordinary people. Now Boaz and Ruth are married, it tells us in verse 13. The primary biblical picture of marriage is covenant. We don't use that term much in our day, but a covenant in ancient times was much more than a promise. It was much more than a contract. It was a binding agreement that was not to be broken uh, unless one died. And there were always witnesses, there were vows, there were statements of what will happen if we break this. It typically was a regal thing that took place between kings. So when you come to a wedding here or other churches and you hear wedding vows, they're very covenantal in their language. Uh, I I, I promise to, to cherish as long as we both shall live. That's covenant language. Before God and these witnesses, there are always witnesses to the covenant. So we see marriage, it was a public thing, and Boaz and Ruth were married. And then it mentions the sexual union. He came into her, and she conceived. All of this comes from God creating marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And you know the pat the verse is one verse. The creation of marriage is in one verse in the Bible, or God completes it in one verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and will hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh now you think about that this god's creating marriage who's getting married adam the name from the ground the first man that's that's what the word adam means and then he names eve life giver so they're being married what's ironic there are no fathers and mothers to leave for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, will hold fast to his wife or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh meaning the sexual union, which is to show forth the oneness of leaving and cleaving. So there's an emotional oneness, there's a spiritual oneness, there's a purpose in life oneness, and then that, it, the icing on the cake then is the sexual union. In our day, we flip that upside down, it seems. Our, our culture has Now, there are gray areas in the Bible. There are a lot of them where we could differ. You say, well, that's your conclusion, this is my conclusion, and it's just not clear. But sex outside of marriage is not a gray area, okay? We may not like it, and others may say, I don't agree with it. But for those who say, well, the Bible doesn't teach it, uh, no, it does, over and over and over. Sex outside of marriage causes confusion. Because Genesis 2 tells us the two become one. And fornication, sex outside of marriage, confuses our bodies as well as our souls. I'm a little bit fascinated with superglue. I'm fascinated because I can't ever seem to get it to work right. You pay $2 for a little tube of superglue, and you're supposed to put one drop on this handle off a coffee cup. Oh, you've seen the commercials. And then you've got a 600-pound man, or a 300-pound man, hanging on it, and it's holding it. Has anyone here ever found that to work? I can't. I can't. I've tried super glue probably 20 times. And each time I say, why did I buy this? It will not do what it says unless you put it where it shouldn't go, like on your fingers. <laughs> you put it on your finger, and that's inevitably where super glue ends up with me. Guess what? Now you've got to go back to the store looking kind of strange and say, now I need to buy that stuff that's supposed to get my fingers unstuck. They make a product to do that. Super glue unsticker. Now, God created the sexual union in marriage to be like super glue, and when you put super glue on your fingers, you can almost pull your skin off when you try to stop. And so, people get confused when they take what God intended in a in a marriage to be like super glue to hold it together, and take it out of the marriage and just use it by itself. So it not only causes confusion, it's also deceptive in that we underestimate its power. Uh, We may think, oh, this is just an isolated incident. We can stop any time we want. No, any addict will testify the problem runs deeper. And the more we sin, the more calloused we become. So we need help. We need help. If you're a young adult, especially a teenager living today, and you want to follow the Lord, what do you do? Well, I was reading a book written to men recently, and it it gave this three-word plan. Flee, flee temptation, follow, pursue righteousness, and fellowship. Be involved in a like-minded, supported community of fellow believers. Barbara and I in Atlanta this week at General Assembly had friends with some, had dinner, had friends with some dinner, had dinner with some friends we'd not seen in many years, and their son, Who was about 24 years old, uh, uh, unmarried? uh, We—he was with us, and I was talking to him and said, "Where are you living?" He told me he's living in this large city, and he was with this kind of startup, this this app on a phone, and realized that really wasn't what he wanted to do. His his background is in foreign relations, and in international business and so forth, so he said, I'm going to be moving. He said, they gave me a nice severance package, but I'm looking for another place to go. And I said, where are you thinking about going? He told me the different cities. And I said, what's going to be the criteria that determines where you go? He said, where I can be involved with a community of believers. Uh, I'd say that young man has his head screwed on straight. So at that point, I said, hey, look, Macon's booming with international business. I mean, you need to come to Macon, Georgia. I said, we got a bunch of people your age, and you would find community. I, in fact, I did do this. Lindsay, you had been proud of me. I did a sales job on him. I said, people move from Macon to big cities, and they tell us, I can't find the community like I had there. Okay. It's not a cultural thing. This is God's, God's law for all of time. Verse 13, she bears a son. It's clear they regarded children as a gift from God. And the author makes that clear. Now, the overall theme of Ruth has been the providence of God, but God has been mentioned rarely in the book. The phrase that was used in chapter 1 and chapter 2 was, and so it happened, and so it happened that Ruth went to this field, and so it happened that Boaz showed up that day. But to the reader, we know this this is God working behind the scenes. Now all of that cloaked language is stripped away. And he takes the human part, Boaz goes into Ruth. Ruth conceives a, uh, a son, but the Lord calls a conception. Now it's like, let's, let's go ahead and talk real straight. God is the one who's causing all of this to happen. The children are a gift from God. Do you see the joys and sorrows in your life as being gifts from God? Where we can even look at pain and say, that is a gift? Then in 14 through 17, we see how Naomi has moved from emptiness of I went away full, I came back empty, my husband's dead, my sons are dead, there's no heirs, we have nothing, I'm starving. And we see this joyful outcome. She's surrounded with prayers of thankfulness to God. And the prayer brings the story full circle and proclaims the providential care of God, that now God God has resupplied what was gone. Blessed be the Lord, they say, who has not left you this day without next of kin. Then in 18 through 22, we have the brief genealogy there. Often we wonder, why are those in the Bible? Well, there are a variety of reasons, but I can tell you this. They're to show that you and I all have a history that matters there's a historical continuity in God's plan of salvation and of course we stress the individualistic nature of faith your relationship to God but it doesn't end there it's not just me and the Lord and my Bible I'm part of a community of faith a local church where the gifts of the body are to complement one another and corporate worship and and God's word and And elders and deacons and spiritual leadership and the things that we need that's part of the community And we're part of a universal church through all of time it's much bigger than just us and what we think on our own so I want to conclude with just two or three thoughts here from the book and from this last passage we're told elsewhere in the Bible not to despise the day of small things Whatever God is doing in your life, and you may feel, I have a very small life. My influence is very limited. The people with whom I rub shoulders are the same people. Or, I, you know, they're not going to read about you or me in the newspaper or see us on, on national television or something like that. And so you may say, I've just got an ordinary life. I go to work or I care for children or I, I'm a student or I, I mow the grass or I'm talking to a neighbor and they're small things, but I can promise you this from standing on God's word, that those small things are a lot bigger than you realize. And you may never see the outcome of those until much later. Secondly, often God's pace is very different from our pace. It's slower, by and large. Here's what I mean. we, we I want God to answer, oh Lord, I pray, I pray, now answer Now or by tomorrow, and if by the second day he hadn't answered, I guess God's not going to act. Everything's got to be in a hurry, and I want it to be spectacular, and I want to see it real quick. When our disabled son was three or four years old, the the medical team here in Macon said, you need him to see a developmental psychologist to figure out just what are you dealing with with his brain. So we got an appointment with who was seen as the ultimate authority up in Atlanta, and very nice man we got in to see him and he he spent about almost an hour with us was very relaxed and every we go into this room and it's about a 12 foot by 12 foot room and and there are three chairs and then there are toys and things in all four corners of the room and the doctor sat down in, in his chair and barbara and i are sitting and he just began to talk to us and stephen couldn't walk at that time and he's crawling around the floor And uh, the doctors asked us about our backgrounds, just kind of carrying on conversation then talking some about Stephen. And after about 20 minutes, he looked at us and said, are you both aware of what's been going on in this room? I said, what do you mean? He said, your son has been working a pattern, a circuit around this room. He went over there in that corner. He flipped that thing over and spun the wheel. Then he went to that corner, then he came back to your wife to see that she approved. Then he went to that corner. Then he went to that corner. And he has been working a circuit. It is very intentional, he told us. I'd never even noticed. He said, the thing is, he's going so slow at his own pace, you don't recognize it." And I think that's often what God is doing. We pray and we, we need help now. I need it yesterday. Act, God. Fulfill your promises. I'm knocking and asking and seeking and all you said about prayer. And God's timetable is just different from ours. As I mentioned, chapter 1, disaster for Naomi. Chapter 2, disaster for Naomi. Chapter 3, bizarre, sending Ruth to the threshing floor. Chapter 4, incredible what's happened. But it didn't happen overnight. I heard someone from this pulpit years ago say, that if we could go back to the first century in the ancient city of Rome, if we could walk up to a citizen of Rome at that time and say, hey, what do you think, a thousand years from now, what do you think the names are that will be remembered? How will people look back, and who will be seen as important? And the citizen, the normal citizen, probably would have said, names that will live forever? Oh, Nero, Caesar, Caesar. Augustus, if we had said, what about those Christ followers? What about those Christians? (laughs) Those Christians, those cult members, those religious lunatics, give them a few years and they'll die out. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that today we name our, our children John and David and Elizabeth and Rebecca and Naomi and Matthew and Mark, and we name our dogs, Nero and Caesar <laughs> See what looks so important one day May not be that way The very next day Let's close in prayer Our Father we, uh, Everyone here represents a different set of Circumstances But we're all under Your hand, your invisible hand As R.C. Sproul put it in your providence And sometimes that providence brings great sorrow Sometimes it brings great joy and often we don't know how to act except with anger or frustration or to throw the towel in when things are difficult. But we, so we thank you for the examples set here. as more than just models of, of Ruth, especially, and Boaz and Naomi. But it's also a, a testimony to us of how you're not only in control of their lives, but over generations that would pave the way for the ultimate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who was the promised one going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. May our trust be in him and him only. And I would pray as a pastor for those here going through very, very deep water, maybe nobody else even knows about it, that today you might rekindle their faith, give them refreshment from your Holy Spirit, help them to have eternal perspective and to grow in their faith, and, and let them see your work, your light, what you're doing on a bigger scale. In Jesus' name, amen.